Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. Artemis, and in today's episode, we're meeting a misunderstood king who resisted colonial rule. History is absolutely full of kings and queens with bad reputations, from power-hungry despots to self-important narcissists and violent sadists. But on closer inspection, we sometimes find that these reputations weren't always entirely justified. That's the argument that my guest today, Lulu Jemima, makes for King Mwanga II, the last king of Buganda before British colonial rule. King Mwanga is known mostly for his part in the killing of 45 young pages who were Christian converts between 1885 and 1887. Some scholars have argued that Mwanga was bisexual and that he had the pages killed after they refused his sexual advances in court. But what if Mwanga's reign and reputation were more complicated than the picture that this story paints? Mwanga came to the throne when he was aged just 16, and he inherited a kingdom which was under threat from European powers engaged in a scramble for Africa. Here to talk to us about King Mwanga is the writer, producer and media consultant Lulu Jemima. With over 10 years experience, Lulu has worked across different platforms from print to radio, stage and screen. She's also been involved in communicating research to broader audiences across topics like health, economics, history and politics. So it was a real pleasure to speak to Lulu about this fascinating piece of history from her home country just last week. Well, Lulu, thank you so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. I'm I'm really excited to speak to you about this um, really, really interesting episode in Ugandan history. It seems to be a kind of turning point in, in the country's history from pre-colonial to colonial. And I wanted to know how well known is the reign of King Mwanga in Uganda? How did you first come across this this particular story? Thank you for inviting me, first of all. I'm so excited to be here. Um, so King Mwanga is one of the more renowned kings of Uganda. And unfortunately, his reputation is not very good. So basically, he was the last pre-colonial king. And when it comes to African history, a lot of the kings or monarchs are remembered for either their resistance or collaboration with the like the British Empire or European imperialists. So because he was the last one, the pre-colonial king, a lot of his reputation is kind of only written along those lines, which is why I find him very interesting. But also, um, Mwanga is notorious in history because he also is remembered for killing the Ugandan martyrs. He played a part in killing 45 young Christian converts between January 1885 and January 1887. And unofficially, actually, Mwanga is known as Mukavia, which means the bringer of tears. So um, a lot of academics have, um, when they're writing about him, they say that he was an openly bisexual man, and they say that he killed these pages because they turned to Christianity, and then they kind of like refused his advances. The reason I became interested in Mwanga, because I work as a researcher in Uganda, and some of my work takes me to different parts of the country, but also different fields that I wouldn't be interested in. So in August last year, I met a real-life king. He's called King Dahura, and he's the king of the Basongora tribe, which is in the west, western part of Uganda. 
But the reason I was really impressed with the king, first of all, he was like taking us along his property and he was showing us his cows and goats and he seemed so normal to me. So before I went there, I was so nervous, like picking out which wine to take him. And he was such an ordinary man. And then I was so fascinated by how he was obsessed with oral history. So King Dahura, and he was telling me, he's been a king since 2015, but he was telling me that a lot of, um, why he's interested in oral history is that a lot of history in Uganda and a lot of African countries is written from the perspective of the West. Now, while there's nothing wrong with this, like especially when the missionaries came in, they taught like young pages and Christians how to write and read. So then they told their own accounts and many of these have not been translated. So he said it's very important to question history. And even in America, we see people like going back on academics and they are questioning accounts of how things were being told. So I started um, reading more about kings and then I came to King Mwanga. So um, when I was reading about King Mwanga, I came across this book. It's called Mwanga II, Resistance to Imposition of British Colonial Rule in Buganda, 1884 to 1889. And it's written by a Ugandan history professor called Samwiri Luanga Lunyengo. The reason I love this book is that he tries to rewrite Mwanga's story into like a hero who fought British occupation. And through that lens, we kind of get to see eh, the decisions he made. But also as a king, a king was, while they were considered a god, they actually had decision makers around him. And how those decision makers actually influenced the decisions he took. And, you know, at the end of the book, you kind of forgive Mwanga for what he did. And also, to be honest, kind of question his role in the killing of the Ugandan martyrs. Mm. It's absolutely fascinating. The story of the Ugandan martyrs is, is a really powerful one, but we're actually not going to visit that today. We're going to visit the first year in, in Mwanga's reign. Why did you want to choose the scenes we're going to go into today rather than looking at the um, what happened with the Ugandan martyrs? The year I want to visit is 1885. So just a year after King Mwanga was crowned king. The reason I chose this is Mwanga came to power at 16 years old, you know. Okay, while his father came into power at 18, he also had a longer reign of 28 years. But um, Mwanga was, he had four years, then he was deposed. So I feel like his reign was already, it had so many challenges. And that's, that first year of his reign is a very good example. And that's why I chose three scenes from that to show how he did not work alone as king, but also all the forces around him that were working against him. So can we talk a bit about what Mwanga's life had been like up until this point, up until the year he became king? Where had he grown up and what had his childhood been, been like? I mean, he is still a child when he becomes king because he's 16, but what had his life been like up until that point? Uh, okay, so I'm um, taking into consideration like um, 19th century Uganda, there was a lot of killing and a lot of royals killed each other in competition for the throne. So, Mwanga, so Mwanga's father, Mutesa, had 85 wives and Mwanga's mother was the 10th of those wives. So he did not grow up in court. So what happened then, like the king could select an heir or the chiefs, and they wouldn't name the heir until the king had passed. So Mwanga did not grow up in court, and actually he was one of, um, he was a reader as well. He read under the Anglican mission and the Catholic mission. So by the time he came to court at 16, a lot of the um, political advisors had actually been inherited from his father. He was a bit at a disadvantage. So what he did, which I thought was brilliant, is he made ministries and he had pe um, people from different religions, the Muslims, the Catholics and the Protestants. So heads of those and then he made them heads in his parliament so he could kind of have a more uniform decision making. Mm. 
So, so Mwang is entering this kind of political climate where that his father's built, which is very much based on trying to unite different religious and political factions. Mm. What what kind of leader was was Mwanga like compared to his father? How how adept was he at managing those factions? Ah, okay. So compared to his father, he was considered very very weak, because while he goes down in history as killing forty five pages and religious matters, Mutesa actually had 70 Muslims killed because they questioned his um, legitimacy at being an Iman. So Mutesa and Mwanga were equally very hungry for knowledge. And the Arab religion had come into Uganda earlier on, so Mutesa actually converted to Islam and he made himself an Imam of um, the royal mosque. But with the, Egypt, with the Egyptian Muslims coming to Uganda, they questioned his legitimacy, especially as an uncircumcised man leading prayers in the mosque. So what he did, he had them killed. And then the king before that killed, I think, 1,500 subjects to cure an illness that he had. So Mwanga was very soft-spoken compared to the two kings that came before him. Mm, mm. And of course, so young as well. So, I mean, that's that seems to me throughout history to have been such an important factor in what monarchs are like, that sometimes we forget that they're coming to the throne as like, you know, when I was 16, I definitely shouldn't have been in charge of anything, <laughs> anything as big as a, as, a, as a kingdom. How important do you think his age was into the decisions that he would make during his reign? Ah, well, I don't think it was so much his age because he was, it was more that he was surrounded by older advisors. Because I remember mm. like some people were taken to court at 15. His dad came into power at 18. But it was the fact that he kind of entered a role having not grown up in court, having not learned how things are run. And then he was suddenly under, you know, the, under the guidance of these um, these leaders. For example, at the time, the prime minister who was called Hamukasa. So they call a prime minister is called a Katikiro in Buganda. So the Katikiro had served in the two uh, previous monarchs, right? But when when the Katikiro came into power, he actually used to refer to to Mwanga as Mutoto which is child, you know? And there's also like um, stories that Mwanga is referred to him as father. And he took this role literally. So he used to undermine a lot of Mwanga's decisions. Mm. Well, that's really helpful. That's our kind of, that's our background that um, listeners can think about as we go into our three scenes in, in 1885. So without further ado, would you like to tell us what scene are we first in in 1885? Okay. So the first scene we're in at 1885 is a a meeting between Mwanga and his chiefs to discuss European influence on the continent. So we have to remember, like at that time, already there were some um, European countries which had colonized African countries, like Egypt, which was a very strong political power in, in Africa and close to Uganda, had already been colonized by the English in 1882. So, so Mwanga is sitting in this meeting, and then these old chiefs were the custodians of the traditional religions. So they are sitting there and they are telling him that his power and authority is being undermined by the missionaries. So before, by the missionaries. Anyway, so he's in this meeting. Two things had happened before this meeting that I think are very important. Mwanga had decided to call back the Christian missionaries. So what happened during his dad's reign, he'd kind of chased away the missionaries, or they had run away out of fear because he thought that they were undermining his authority. So Mwanga had actually invited them back to court and given them land and servants. Now, it's very likely that even if he was young, he was smart enough to give them servants as spies. We don't know that. Then in February, just five months into his reign, there was a plot to assassinate him. 
but and then it came out so one of the people who revealed these plots was another guy called joseph mukasa balikudembe and i'll come to him later but it, it was it was revealed that the people who were planning to assassinate muanga were actually the old chiefs now in any other with any other king that would have led to murder instantly but what Mwanga did is he reshuffled and then he brought in younger chiefs as well to be in his court so he's in this meeting in september 1885 and for me why this is important is that it shows his aid diplomacy even at a young age but also the concerns of the chiefs so the chiefs were telling him that the missionaries are actually tools of imperialism and they're coming to take over so they had seen this in tanganyika they'd seen this in egypt and they had legitimate reasons to be concerned and then he was also so the chiefs were also very disgruntled that he'd hired these young pages to serve in his court and can we talk a bit about the missionaries for people for any listeners mm -hmm. who aren't familiar with with this bit of history when had missionaries started arriving in buganda um, you mentioned that the chiefs saw mm -hmm. missionaries um, in the country as tools of colonialism how long had missionaries been in the country and, and what to what extent was that true uh, okay, so the Roman Catholics had arrived in the country around 1879, and two years before that, the Protestants had um, arrived in Buganda. But the Islam, the Islam religion, had been around for about three decades because they came with the Arab traders. Now, um, whether they were a threat to the to the to the monarchs or to the tribes that existed, because they came with guns, you know, and every, whoever has the gun has the power. And also there was this kind of interesting thing where, um, for example, the Protestants were close to the British, the Catholics were aligned with the Germans, and the Muslims with the Sultan of Zanzibar. And in Buganda, for example, the, the people of Buganda tended to follow the religion of their kings. So it was very important to get missionary support by actually getting the king on your side. To what extent do you think that the British were sending missionaries to places like Buganda to exert political control is I guess I'm trying to figure out is it we can't just um take these missionaries in good faith that they're just literally arriving to to spread the word of Christianity is that the case yeah that is the case because um that's the case actually because what happened in 1888 um Mwanga was actually overthrown and what happened how it happened is that the British backed a rebellion by Christian and Muslim groups to overthrow him so and then of course they blamed his role in the killing of the martyrs but he was captured the next year and what he did is although he took refuge in the catholic missionary he eventually negotiated with the british making buganda a protectorate in 1894. Mm, mm. so that gives us a bit of a sense of who the missionaries were yeah can you paint a bit of a picture for us in this first scene where with Mwanga he's surrounded by his advisors mm -hmm. where where are we exactly what kind of um can you can you paint a picture what's the scene that we're in okay so the scene that I'm imagining is like a grass thatched you know kind of round because they sat around in round circles right and then they're all facing each other so back then you had to the grass thatch houses you had to go in by kind of like folding yourself and then coming out and it was a very good security tactic because if someone was attacking you, they had to go down and under and then you had the advantage. So I imagine them in there and, you know, that the chiefs are like telling Mwanga that, you know, that the Christian missionaries are coming and we have to get rid of them. And we actually have to attack them. And Mwanga and the young, young pages, including him himself, because he was a former page, is listening, but also not as alarmed. You know, there's also this idea of like all the people are always 
not always, but I'm always afraid of change. So I imagine this scene like going back and forth and one guy's like, why? You know, he needs justification to do this, but he can't also just make a decision. And then in this meeting, I imagine the Katikiro, the prime minister as the loudest voice because he hated the Catholic missionaries. Because for him, first of all, they educated the pages who then were hired and then undermined his authority. So they were his biggest threat to power in Buganda. So um, I remember actually there's um, just before the meeting, there was Alexander McKay, who was the resident um, missionary in Buganda, had written to his sister and said that the missionaries had, they had rioted and they had um, asked for Mwanga to get rid of them, but he'd stood firm. So I imagine this meeting like that, Mwanga is standing firm, he's like, no. But then what happened is that there was another missionary coming, they had, there was word that there was a missionary coming from the east of Buganda who is called Bishop James Hannington. So I think that kind of increased the tension because they, they were convincing the king that Bishop Hannington is coming as their leader, as a missionary leader. And all Christians are the same, whether Protestant or Catholic. And that, and that is why, you know, that's what leads into my next scene. Yes, I was just going to say that does lead us on very nicely to our next scene. So so where are we next? What's the date and what part of Burganda are we in? So for the next scene, we're actually in Busoga. So Busoga um, neighbours Buganda to the east. And um, we are in a little cell, I guess, I, again, a grass that cell, which I'm imagining. And in that cell is Bishop Hannington, the first Protestant bishop to East Africa. And the day is 29th October, 1885. And who was Bishop Harrington and why was he in Buganda? So Bishop James Hannington was a 38-year-old Anglican bishop who is recorded as the first Anglican bishop to come to East Africa. And he was very intent on opening up a route to Buganda through the eastern part of the country, which is Busoga. But unfortunately for him, there was one problem. Buganda was strategically positioned on the northern shores of Lake Victoria, controlling the River Nile, which also went into Egypt. So for them, that was where they had military prowess. And they considered the East as their backyard. And it was considered a very bad omen for any visitors to come at them through the East. So actually what had happened, there was an oracle that had um, been predicted before that Buganda's conqueror would come from the East. So any visitors to Buganda through that side? Yeah, it was suspicious for any visitor to come to Buganda through the east. And Bishop Harrington is arriving into the country from the east. What happens next? So what happened is, Bishop, so Bishop Harrington had actually, so um, in 1882, when he was still a reverend, he'd actually come into, he tried to come into Uganda through the, the Zanzibar route, the right route. He'd fallen sick with dysentery and malaria and he'd gone back to England. Now, as a newly ordained bishop, he was very determined eh, not to use the old route and also to come and see his mission through and come through the East. What happened is Alexander Mackay, the resident missionary, asked the king for permission and then the king said, no, he has to use the old route, the normal route. So Alexander Mackay writes to the bishop a letter, but it arrives two weeks after Huntington had left the coast. So Huntington is recorded as being very impatient as well. So he just comes and then um, when he gets to, to Buganda, of course, he's arrested. And then because you, Buganda is very centralized, nothing happens until it goes back to the king. But also decisions have to be made from the court. So what happens? He was arrested by Chief Luba and Chief Luba arrested him for 10 days as they were waiting for word from the king. So he's in this cell or this confinement. And it's actually said that the prisoners were so friendly and so taken by him that they offered him um, an escape route, which he refused to take because of his bravery. 
So anyway, he's being arrested and, and then they try something else. Then they say, okay, maybe he can give the king, I think, three guns and, and um, ten barrels of, of gunpowder. You know, because when you come, you come with a gift. And also he wrote in his diary, I think on the 27th of, um, of that month, that he turned this down. So he refused to do that as well. So you can imagine he's being held there waiting for the king's word. And then it's actually rumored that King Mwanga, when he heard that Huntington was in captivity, he actually sent some men to take him back to the shore where he can come and escort him the normal route. But Boganda and Busoga are neighboring countries. And while their languages can sound the same, they are so different. So when um, so there's a legend that Chief Luba actually misunderstood the message from the king. So this letter comes to him, and the Luganda word for kill is kuta, and the, and the word for release is kuta. So you see how they are similar. So it's assumed that Mwanga had said kuta, like, no, had said kuta, like let him go, and then Luba read kuta, like kill, kuta. Mm. But also it's very possible that Luba had been angry at um, Huntington's insolence and had just started to carry out the execution anyway. But so after, after Huntington was killed, um, King Mwanga is said to have been very, very distraught. And he actually asked for his remains to be brought into the capital, into Uganda. And then they had a service for him where Alexander Mackay gave a, a speech and said that by killing, by executing Huntington, the king did not mean that to go against Christianity. If the bishop had gone to the right route, he would have been spared. So this is really interesting because... Is there another interpretation of this story that says that it was all Mwanga who uh, who asked that Harrington be executed? And you're suggesting that it was not that at all and that it's a, a miscommunication. Because in the research that I was doing, there's very much this sense that there's one interpretation of Mwanga which is very anti-Christian and yes. anti-British. Yes. Um, but you think perhaps not the case in, in, in your interpretation. I mean, I, I just love these little, these small legends and stuff because um, the, the, the professor who wrote this book actually went to Seychelles for research where Mwanga was later um, taken into exile. You know, so he's done yeah. his work and stuff and there are a lot of researchers who are coming up to question the official records. And they're saying, um, yeah, so this, so this is also now taken as an official record, something that mm. we now consider. Yes, Huntington was executed at the orders of Mwanga but it is actually um, proven or it's actually written that the Katikiro, the prime minister, is the one who gave the order, first of all. Mm. And secondly, the order was to spare his life and just send him back. Mm. Yeah. It's just one of those really tragic moments in history, isn't it, where there's some, where there's like a fork in the road and two things could have happened. And the thing that happened was the the violent one or the one that wasn't intended or certainly wasn't intended in, in, the, in the mind of King Mwanga. Yeah. So what what is the significance of this event? The, what is the aftermath of Harrington being executed? So that yeah, so the significance of his execution first of all is that later when Mwanga was accused of killing the martyrs, it justified it. You know, because mm. he'd killed um the martyr actually, and one of the pages who was very um important in Mwanga's uh, kingdom had criticized the king publicly for doing this by telling him even your father did not kill missionaries now it wasn't uncommon for kings to kill pages and stuff but to actually kill a missionary so it kind of put a stamp on him as someone who was against christianity and religion mm. i want to talk a bit about the prime minister as well because we've mm. not really 
he he seems to be quite a malevolent force in Wanga's um government. Who who was he and um could you tell us a bit about him? Katikiro Ham Mukasa served under Mwanga's dad and under Mwanga's grandfather. But it is said that he actually rose up um to the rose up in the ranks from the level of a, a toilet cleaner. You know, he used to clean the, the quarters of the king. So he was very attached to power, but also he was, it shows his determination. And he came up in power. But he also came up, so he served under two different periods. Mutesa, who tended to lean more to the Muslims, even if he also had religious intolerance, and Mwanga, who was very more open and worldly, which did not sit well with um, the Katikiro, the prime minister. So, mm. and he was a very, and he was also prone to very, to anger. And he was also very smart. So what he did, because Mwanga was used to like making a decision and changing his mind very quickly. Like politically, we see this a lot in his career. So if he gave a command, for example, to arrest someone, Katikula would give a command to kill someone. Now, I'm not saying this to take away any of the actions that Mwanga did, but also to show how important that Katikula was in his life. And what was the relationship between the prime minister and the king? How much how much relative power did the prime minister have? Or was this was his actions completely kind of inappropriate considering the amount of power he was meant to have? Mm-hmm. So the two actually had a good relationship because Mwanga at some point just referred to him as a, a father. But what I liked about Mwanga's time is that he let people come up if they proved to be worthy. For example, there was um, a page who was called Joseph, also called Mukasa, Joseph Mukasa Balikudembe. So Joseph Mukasa Balikudembe also served under the under Mwanga's dad. There's a story that I like. A cobra entered King Mutesa's quarters and then the young page was there, um, Joseph Mukasa, and he couldn't find a stick. So what he did is he strangled the snake with his bare hands. And because of that, King Mutesa actually named him or christened him Balikudembe, which in the Lugandan language means they're at peace. So um, it meant they're at peace to practice their religion. So Balikudembe was very important, A, to the Catholic mission, but B, to the political status. So when Mwanga took him over, of course, he became one of his political advisors. And also he was one of the few people who warned Mwanga about the plot to kill him. Now, the Katikiro, on the other hand, is facing these young pages who are coming up. They're putting them in positions like the head of intelligence. They are smart, they are well-read, and they are a threat to his position in power. Hi there, it's Peter here. UnseenHistories.com is now three months old, and already it is packed full of enticing, illuminating, and excellently presented historical material. If you give the site a visit today, you'll see many beautifully illustrated excerpts of books that we've featured on Travels Through Time. There's excerpts from Malcolm Gaskell's Ruin of All Witches, Nigel Pickford's Samuel Pepys and the Strange Wrecking of the Gloucester, and Gary Shaw's Egyptian mythology, along with many others as well. For those of you who like maps, you might want to check out the utterly compelling series of pieces on the Battle of Fredericksburg in 1862. That was a crucial moment in the American Civil War, along with a range of fabulously colourised images from Jordan Lloyd. It really is history for our times. UnseenHistories.com That that leads us on really nicely to our final scene that we're going to visit in 1885. You've introduced us to the protagonist of this third scene, Joseph Mukasa Balukudembe. 
where are we and um what time of year is it i always feel like that's an important way of kind of grounding us okay yeah so this is towards the end of that first year in mwanga's reign it's um november 15th 1885 and the last thing takes place at the royal palace so um a few things uh, so this was two weeks after bishop hannington had been executed so um and the, and the character in this story is joseph mukasabali kudembe who is i think my favorite character from that time of the story because first of all he's written about as being very honest very soft-spoken but very strong-willed and he had kind of risen up in ranks and become very close to the king so what happened there are two versions of this story of why he was executed but why um joseph mukasabali kudembe is important is his he goes down in record as the first ugandan martyr to actually be killed at the hands of mwanga so his um there's a church and schools in his name now so bali kudembe what happened the two stories it's assumed that the first one, he was very vocal about, about the killing of the bishop. So Bali Kudembe is quoted as rebuking King Mwanga by saying, Your father Mutesa never put a white man to death. Why then should you want to kill one? Do not put him to death because of what your chiefs have said. They will upload any decision. Do not kill that white man. For if you do, you will have to answer for it before God. Now, you have to remember that some accounts say that already Mwanga was feeling very bad about what happened to Huntington. So to have someone oppose him publicly might not have gone down very well. But um, Joseph Mukasabali Kudembe was by this point one of the, first of all, he was the leader of the pages, of the Christian pages, and he had to voice his concerns or his regrets or his frustrations. And then it said that the king um, scolded him like there's a whole night. The king is just scolding Balikudembe and explaining to him like, I know what happened. I know it's a mistake and they're just having this. So that's my favorite part of this uh, last scene. And he's telling him off. And then frustrated, he gets the Katikiro, the prime minister, to take Balikudembe away and arrest him. And then he tells the Katikiro that Balikudembe is really disrespecting him. And so some accounts say that it is then the Katikiro who ordered the murder of Joseph Mukasabali Kudembe, as opposed to the king. So by the time the king had found out, it was another tragedy he'd faced because this was one of his closest friends, his confidant, and his political advisor. Mm. So they have this, they have this terrible argument, and then again, it's a, it's the prime minister who sends, yeah. he sends the order. Yeah. Is that... So the prime minister sends the order for him to be beheaded and burnt alive. Mm. Gosh. And how does Mwanga react to this? What does this mean for him to lose his close friend, his confidant, his political advisor? Yeah, so that, that's, that, that's the part that's a bit missing in history. Maybe someone has um, written about it or people are just discovering it. But Mwanga, from what I've been reading recently, he wasn't one to react because if that had happened, Katikiro would have been dead. You know, so it either shows two things, the power that the Katikiro had as a prime minister over Mwanga or the fact that Mwanga was not, you know, as prone to these rages as he's represented in history. Mm, mm. But there's also a second account of what may have happened. So it's believed that Mwanga had an eye infection. And when he had this eye infection, there's a, a, a European missionary who's called Father Lodel, who apparently gave like a concoction for Mwanga's eye. And because Bali Kudembe was a confidant, he was the one who was administering the medicine. But unfortunately, the king's condition kind of got worse. So it's again believed that um, the Katikiro, the prime minister, then convinced the king that it was Balikudembe's fault. Mm, you know, that this had happened. And he was telling him, like, he didn't follow, like, the, 
you know how like in modern day where they say like eat this food before you take the medicine eh? or drink a lot of water so then they were saying like don't eat i think meat or something there were a few conditions he had to follow to take this concoction anyway so of course he blamed bali kudembe and arrested him but the end story is the same everyone says it was again the katikiro who then ordered the killing before mwanga had a chance to react mm-hmm. so those are the two stories one that he was executed because he disagreed with the execution of Bishop Harrington and the other interpretation or the other story that he was mistaken for having made the king ill by misadministering this uh, the concoction. What, which one do you think is, or do you think that the truth lies somewhere in the middle? I think the truth lies in the middle. I think, I mean, it's, it's interesting because Buganda has a very rich oral tradition, yeah? So it's very possible that this account had been written about the eye. It's very possible because the book that I read it is also referenced in another book. So it's very possible that that's one of the accounts. But I think um, that his criticism of the death of um, Bishop Huntington was also not taken lightly. Maybe not by Mwanga, but by the old chiefs. So mm. I think a bit of both, yeah. And I'm really interested by the fact that all throughout these three scenes, it seems that there's this relationship between Mwanga and his closest political advisors where he feels and thinks one way and they feel and think another and what he mm. wants doesn't end up being what happens. What do you think that's a do you think that's a reflection of his character as a leader, or is it just an unfortunate series of, of events? I think mm, you know, I think it's I think it's his character as a leader, actually, because he later became stronger, but he was very undecided. And a lot of even the records which either point him as a villain and those which point him as a good person, they all at least seem to agree to that. He was very undecided. He went back and forth. He was uh, and he relied too much on his not subjects, on his political advisors. You know, you know, but you've just been thrust into power. Five months in, you realize a plot to kill you. And that wasn't that wasn't like shocking because kings were killing their brothers and relatives left, right and center. But you're already guarded. But then there are European threats or colonialist threats coming in. Then remember, mm. um, Uganda is near Lake Victoria, which controls the river Nile that goes to Egypt. So that's always a threat from the north. You know, in the west, there's other powers. So I think... There was too much going on that he had to deal with that other kings did not have to contend with or to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and like you said, because this is just the first year, we're just literally five months into his reign. And he's only, as you you kind of mentioned before, he only reigns for another four years yeah. um, before the British take over. So was the writing on the wall for Mwanga in his first year or... Was it kind of was it kind of inevitable that this was going to happen, or was there still even after these terrible things that happened in eighteen eighty five, was there still a chance that a different we could have had a different ending to this story? I think I think um, the writing was on the wall because by then the colonial powers had really established themselves, especially around him. And he wasn't, um, even if he, um, the, the kings before him had set up a very strong naval fleet around Lake Victoria, but he was really weak around like the north and the west and the east. And it was only a matter of time. I think what's sad for it for me in this story is that he did try to collaborate. And he, he goes down in history as very intolerant, as, and also like his urges, you know, like they write about him as this king 
who wanted um, these pages to sleep with him and then he didn't do it. But actually everything under Buganda belongs to a king, you know? That, so there's a, the Buganda called their king Bafe, like Bawafe. Both men and women, they refer to him as our husband. So I don't think he was running around looking for sexual favors, you know? And from what we hear, I don't think he would kill, I don't know. But I don't think that it's really enough to justify him killing these matters because they refuse his advances. Now it's very, very clear and there's records that he was openly bisexual. But again, that was the time, you know, like this whole non-conforming sexuality of the 19th century. And another thing that um, I guess for me kind of struck a chord with me is that there was this movement of spiritual, like spiritual cleansing, I think that came from England, you know, where they were already burning like, you know, homosexual relationships and stuff. And the missionaries carried these sentiments with them. And, you know, so when they came, they were already threatening to ban polygamy. For example, he wanted to be baptized. And then they, you know, they refused to, to baptize some kings and some chiefs because they either practiced polygamy or they, you know, had same-sex relationships. And he was just caught at the crossroads. He was the king mm. that had to deal with all of that. Yeah, and, and that's so interesting. And I, I kind of almost want to spend a bit of time on that specifically because some people who are listening might be quite shocked or surprised to find out that same-sex relations were very common and accepted in Buganda before um, British colonial rule. Can we talk a bit about that? What what was the sort of, what was the attitude towards same-sex relations in 19th century Buganda? So um, the attitude towards same-sex relations, and I don't want to go on record for this, but of course there are two different schools, right? Two different arguments. So some, some, some academics, especially with a religious inclination, they say that oh, this is just a way to justify because Uganda right now has had very strict laws and it's very problematic when it comes to gay rights, like really, really bad, you know? But so some humanitarians have approached it from an academic point of view by pointing out that kings like Mwanga and, you know, kings in the north were actually openly bisexual or gay. But really, people had children. Like the king, you know, Mwanga had 16 wives. You know, he had lots of children. His father had 85 wives. It wasn't a very sexually conservative nation. And by, like, it's very, very clear that there were there was homosexual practices way before Christianity. And actually, that went down when the missionaries came into the countries. There are basically two interpretations. And one of them is that, this is something that's been used to justify the religious argument is that the talking about how same-sex relations were treated in the past is a way of justifying it in the future. And then there's the other argument. Mm. That's fascinating. Thank you so much for, for explaining some of that. Generally, looking back over these three scenes, you've painted a picture of a, a young king who is trying his mm. best to be diplomatic, um, to to allow um, sort of thoughtful and clever people in his in his uh, circle to rise up and to take responsibility for things. You've painted him as a kind of like an immature but about to mature into a very wise king. But that's so different, mm -hmm. as you've said, to the another the mainstream interpretation of him or the the interpretation of his kingship that's been um, dominant for so many years. Why do you think this? Yeah this more negative interpretation of him has been dominant and when did it first come about? So I think the reason why um, the negative interpretation of Mwanga's life is predominant is first of all, it was written at the time, you know, and in a language of historians, of earlier historians. So basically, um, one of the earliest um, accusations of homosexuality regarding Mwanga was a letter written by Alexander Mackay two months after his coronation 
claiming that the king had punished a young page called Apollo Kagwa for turning down his advances. And the reason I say accusation is because they were not just saying Mwanga was a homosexual or a bisexual, they were implying that he was practicing sodomy. He was forcing himself on the young pages mm. who had turned to Christianity. But also, um, we have to remember that this... So um, so a lot of records that were happening were interpreted at the time, you know. And 19th century, there was a lot of moral cleansing, you know, or social... It's called the social purity movement in England. So it literally opposed any non-reproductive sexual activity, even among, like, young unmarried couples and stuff. And this is the time that Mwanga was caught in as well. So a lot of records that were analyzed before, the history that goes back years... It's only until recently that academics are coming back and they're looking at oral history and they're looking at the history that was written, for example, in Luganda, you know, or passed down in generations that they're trying to piece together and come up with an alternative version. Mm. And I read when I was re doing some research for this interview that at the same time um, as as this was happening in England, Oscar Wilde was on trial for being homosexual as well. Exactly. So there really was this sense of this moral panic about homosexuality that's coming over from Britain. Yeah, exactly. And that's and that's a shame because it, it, when it came over as well, it got rid of some um, practices. It's, uh, I'm going to use Uganda as an example that were actually social survival tools. You know, for example, there are practices in some tribes where if if a woman lost her husband, she was inherited by her husband's brother you know, financially and stuff and, you know, just for security or economically. So they, they spoke against polygamy. They spoke against, um, you know, there's some records about even masturbation. I don't know how they would monitor that back then, but they just came with these ideas of this is how it should be, you know. And suddenly we have a young king who's stuck in there between the old ways, which is, and remember he studied under the Anglican and the Catholic religion as well. So he's open-minded, obviously, but he's stuck between the chiefs being like, this is literally our custom, you know, and the mm. Westerners being like, no, but this is how it should be. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you for telling us about it because it's so, so interesting. Lulu, before we head back into the present from 1885, you're yeah. allowed to bring back a memento with you. Yeah. What would you like to bring? So um, when I, so I don't know if I bring back an object, but what I would definitely bring back is that snake that almost killed King Mutesa. You know, the mm -hmm. snake that um, Joseph Mukasabali Kudembe strangled because I feel like, you know, in religious symbolism, a snake is used for evil and temptation. But literally when this Christian page strangled the snake to save his king, that is when the king said the Catholics are open to practice their religion, you know. And for me, it would be a symbol of how we need to re-examine and rethink, but also of how adaptive and how changing, you know, like the Buganda culture was. As long as something made sense from Mwanga to the king before, you could see that they are willing to change. So I'd have that in a museum with nothing else, just for people to reflect on. And yeah. that's I love that. That's so, that's a brilliant one. Thank you. Well, Lulu, thanks so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. It's been, um, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much. That was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Lulu Jemima about the year 1885. As ever, you can find out much more about this episode and any of our others via our website, which is tttpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.